Howdy. Welcome to History of Our Mysteries. I am your host, Jack Young. What you are about to hear are stories of untold mystery. Sit back and relax while we mystify you with tales of wonder, terror, suspense, and the unknown. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to this channel and check in every Friday at 9pm. Finally, we are also accepting donations at the link below. Find somewhere dark and learn about the history of our mysteries. Alrighty, everyone, welcome to History of Our Mysteries, Episode 6. This week I'm actually uh, on a, I guess you could say a camping trip, uh, I'm on what's referred to as a hitch, and that's uh, we camp for five to ten days and we uh, do trail work while camping. So, uh, doing this podcast out here, I had the, uh, I had a really good idea for this episode. So, um, I know I said last week uh, that episode was going to be longer, but I know for sure this one will be longer. Uh, I have more, like, way more notes. Uh, I put a lot more effort into this one as well so uh today we're going to be talking about missing 411 and i know what y'all are thinking if you don't know what is missing 411 well missing 411 is the collective cases of individuals who have either gone missing or have been found under both mysterious and disheartening situations centered around national and state parks all over the united states this is a relatively new topic. Um, it's about only 10 years old. Uh, I'm going to get into who started this soon, but uh, this hasn't really been talked about up until recently. About This is a, the 10th year anniversary of this subject as well, and that's also why I decided to go over this, but uh, that's just something to note. Um, David Paulides, who wrote the original book detailing this phenomenon, originally dubbed the phrase Missing 411, with the number 411 being due to a number uh, from about the 90s or so. Uh, it ranges. It, it goes from the 60s to about close to present day. But the number fi- uh, 411 was for... Uh, it was a number that you could call to get information on a subject. But he... Polides named it Missing 411 because he believed that these disappearances uh, around the National and State Parks were full of lack of information in the cases so think about it like this he calls it missing 411 because there's the lack of information that's that's why it's called that um it doesn't have anything to do with how many people are missing because trust me when i get into it later there are way more than that and uh it has it just doesn't have any other meaning besides that um so we're gonna get into david paulides uh and why he started this so David Polides had worked in law enforcement in San Jose, San Jose Police Department, then moving to the same SWAT team, street crimes unit, and then detective division for 20 years. Working and doing research in a national park had led him to a disturbing set of facts that no one had really put together before. A disturbing amount of people have gone missing in congested areas around national parks, state parks, and cave systems especially. So, um... If you look into a graph or any statistic, uh, the besides inner city, 
the most people that have uh, gone missing since the National Park Service has been founded is in the national and state parks. And if you look deeper into that, um, even more congested than that in those areas are the cave systems. The cave systems are the most uh, congested areas where people go missing. So keep that in mind. Um, he no- Like I said, he noticed that people had gone missing in these these uh, places around the country. So as his research into the matter deepened, he noticed that more and more cases had unbelievably mysterious and unexplainable occurrences in them. The subject of Missing 401 is a relatively new mystery that is being studied. With Paulides releasing his first book, Missing 411, Eastern United States, Unexplained Disappearances of North Americans that Have Never Been Solved in 2012. And he has since then wrote 10 more or 9 more books, so making total of 10 so he's wrote about 10 books, one a year, and you can easily get the books. Uh, they're all over the place, but uh, yeah, he's written 10 books about it. Um, and as this topic gets a little bit older, as it's, you know, like I said before, it's the 10th anniversary of this subject. As more research and development is being put into the subject, it, it has answered some questions in the topic, but in reality, it it actually has opened up more questions than answers, so. Um, so, I'm going to get into Polites and uh, some more facts about Missing 411 in a little bit, like a little later, but uh, I'm just going to tell you all some uh, facts about Missing 411. So, for starters, the U.S. National Park Service does not actually keep an independent list of people that go missing in their parks. While incident and criminal reports are accessible to citizens through local PD through the Freedom of Information Act, the National Park Service oddly is not held accountable or responsible for logging these cases. So this whole time, uh, I'll go into it further, but as these people have gone missing, the National Park Service hasn't kept count or accountability of any of these people. So they don't have any record in their account uh, of who has gone missing, when they have gone missing, uh, how many people have gone missing, and etc. The data compiled through Missing 401 is actually through uh, uh, like incident reports and like missing persons reports through the local PD. So the National Park Service keeps themselves out of it for some really weird reason, and some for another weird reason they're legally able to stay out of it. I don't know what that's about. Um, and that's something that we'll talk about later. But according to examiner.org, since the National Park Service was established in 1916, more than a thousand visitors have disappeared while visiting a park, often without a trace. But David Polides and other uh, retired uh, search and rescue people, they also estimate that the number of unexplained disappearances in North America are actually more around 1,600. So that means that 1600 people around the country in national parks and state parks uh have disappeared without a trace uh they haven't been found and uh i don't have the number right here but um a lot more have gone missing but have been found whether dead or alive a lot more so that's just that's just the number of people who have vanished off the face of the earth um looking into the congestion of missing persons in national parks the most congestion congested areas for both unsolved disappearances 
and murder scenes are in cave systems around North America, like I said before. Um, I suggest you look up on Google Missing 411. Uh, I think it's called the Missing 411 Congestion Map. I, I just look up missing 411 map and it'll probably show it, but uh, it'll show. Uh, I think the more congested an area is, the more red it becomes. And naturally, you know, all around the national park systems, they're pretty red, but the cave systems, they're like blood red and it's chilling. It's really weird. And those cave systems are super small and it's weird that they're so dark. Um, like I said, with the National Park Service, they also, with the National Forest Service, do not actually know how many people go missing in their parks every year, and their explanation is also really strange. Um, they just don't keep track. That's their official explanation for why they don't keep records of people. Um, but on the other side, oddly enough, the most accurate and reliable info on missing people in the wilderness actually come from Bigfoot hunters. They're the ones who notice the evidence of missing people and find bodies. So um, most of the people who have disappeared and been found, not most, uh, the most accurate uh, you know, data from people who find this stuff are actually from the Bigfoot hunters because they go out into the middle of nowhere and you know, trek a bunch of distances to uh, search for that mythological creature that i might talk about at some point but uh they are the ones who usually find evidence and possibly people um and it's weird to me i don't know that's just me personally but it's weird that they are the ones that are uh <clears throat> officially you know from the new york post they're the ones that are the most accurate uh sources of information for this subject it's very strange um and about Missing 411, the data that we've found so far, um, according to David Polides, most people actually disappear in the late afternoon and during or just before severe weather. Bodies are often found in places that have been previously searched multiple times. Bodies are also sometimes found with all their clothes taken off, even when hypothermia would be ruled out. So let me just reiterate that. Um... That, that isn't just David Polides. Other people have attested to this, but most uh, most of these search and rescue uh, disappearances, uh, they have strange circumstances to them. And I, it is weird to me that people get found where uh, places have been searched multiple times, but I, I honestly, I think that can be attested to inclement weather. Um, let's say it's raining or snowing, and people go and search an area well the terrain changes when weather starts so let's if it's raining the ground can get muddy uh the person could possibly get more submerged or uh they can become camouflaged with the ground because the mud sticks to them or if it's snowing you know a whole nother layer is there um it's a different it's just kind of a different location when this inclement rain or weather starts happening um and like David Politi said, um, bodies are also sometimes found with all their clothes taken off, even when hypothermia would be ruled out. Well, <clears throat> uh, the last stage of hypothermia uh, has you taking off your clothes because of, uh, I don't, I can't really explain why, but it's when you're in this icebox stage, uh, you start to act irrationally 
and uh, become aggressive and making the wrong decisions when you start to get hypothermia. So um, people will take their clothes off. And from other attestments I've heard of, I haven't, I don't have the sources here, but um, some people have that have had hypothermia, they say that um, they will take their clothes off when they're encountering hypothermia in the late stages because they actually feel really warm, which is really weird. So uh, and let me let me back up a little bit. Um, hypothermia is the, uh, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call it disease. It's more like a condition that people go through when they're losing body heat. Uh, their body temperature goes down and that can go from uh, a range of mild hypothermia to uh, severe hypothermia and severe hypothermia can lead to death like easily. So uh, once people start getting into mild hypothermia, they start uh, kind of acting irrationally and start um, doing stupid things, but they're not, they're not really aware of it though. And they also, uh, what's it called? Uh, you know, they'll take their clothes off with these bad decisions but that's also because like i said before they will feel really hot and just take off their clothes um but david pleady says that they'll take their clothes off even when hypothermia will be ruled out i don't know about that um that doesn't sound right to me just because that is a very clear case of hypothermia and you can't really rule out hypothermia if they're recovered from hypothermia then you can't really tell and if you're exposed out in in the wilderness, uh, you're always. We learned this in our in our uh, uh, wilderness survivor uh, wilderness first responder class. But uh, if you're out in the wilderness and you have nothing to lay on, uh, you will always be battling the ground in terms of heat. Um, you're essentially transmitting heat from yourself to the ground, and it's like a battle. And you will always lose that battle. You will always uh, surrender your heat to the ground because there's much more of the ground than you. So uh, if you're out in the uh, the wilderness and you have your clothes taken off uh, and you're probably laying on the ground, you're probably having hypothermia because you have the loss of body heat. So I just, I find that uh, condition to be a little probably wrong, but that's just me. Um, I'm going to get into... Uh, so the national parks that actually have the most disappearances are in order right here from the fifth highest to the highest as follows. So, number five, Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks. They both total 138 persons each for missing disappearances. Number four, Rocky Mountain National Park, 165 persons. Yos number three, Yosemite. 233 persons missing. Never found. Number two, Grand Canyon National Park. 290 persons. And number one is a little strange. I've actually never heard of this place. And it's also not a, technically a national park, but it's in the National Park Registry. But number one is actually Lake Mead National Recreation Area. And believe it or not, this place has 563 persons missing. That's almost twice the amount of number two, which is 290 persons from the Grand Canyon. That's really weird. But it can be, I think it can be explained. So the Lake Mead National Recreation Area, from what I saw, it was a, a spot that people can go to. And it's actually kind of a land bridge between two lakes. And 
a lot of disappearances can happen on lakes just from people drowning and never being found or you know uh just I, I i think it has something to do with the lakes that's why so many people have gone completely missing but um it's weird to me that such a like relatively unknown place i guess to me especially has almost twice the amount of people missing as grand canyon national park considering how big grand canyon is and how uh dangerous it is actually too so it's it's very strange um and I didn't write this down, but um, missing 411 is I I wouldn't call it a pseudo like a pseudo intelligence uh, thing going on because there is research going on about it, but it's not. I, before I talk about these stories and like before I go into more of the subject, it's not um, like I said, it's a relatively new subject and it's not um, it's not. How do I put this? It's not accredited by like huge like educational like uh, centers like universities and uh, like researchers and stuff, but uh, it is a known thing. And uh, David Polites is the forefront of this research, and it will get. I I, I think it will get uh, more nationally recognized because it's a big topic and it's important. Uh, because we all love our national parks, but um, there are some really funky things going on there. That I'm there are some stories that I have that uh, talk more about that. But uh, there's some really funky things going on out there, and uh, we just need to be aware that national parks aren't a safety net. They aren't some place that you can magically just be safe from everything because you are out in the wilderness, and there are way more risks associated out there than there are you know, in your house or in the city because you don't have, you know, you have the lack of resources, you have the lack of communication sometimes, you have uh, the distance between civilization and you. It's just, it's just a lot of more factors contribute to, uh, you know, injuries and uh, loss of communication and such inside these national parks. So, so <clears throat> sorry for going off on a rant, but uh I have five stories here uh, that I found, and from memory as well, but um, these are some of the five most mysterious cases uh, in 411 in all those 1600 cases. So, I'm actually going to start with Paula Weldon. 18-year-old Paula Weldon was a freshman college student who had decided to set out on a long trail in December of 1946. The long trail is in an area in Vermont and which is now called the Bennington Triangle, and I'll get to that later. Before going to the trail, Paula had told her roommates that she was going out for a long walk. Both her roommates and passersbys noted that Paula was wearing clothes suited for a short walk, with jeans, a coat, and sneakers. That night, temperatures were expected to go below freezing, and Paula's roommates expected her to be back before dark. Paula went on to her walk on the long trail and was never seen again. When she didn't return by nightfall, her roommates called the school and the search began. Classes were dismissed the next day so all the staff and students could join in the search. At first, the search was abundantly disorganized. And what they mean by that is that there was lack of authority uh, leading the searches and there was uh, a lot of uh, I guess volunteers 
that weren't being corralled and weren't being directed so things were kind of just getting out of hand um so at first the search was or sorry that was i already said that um the search didn't start becoming efficient until paula's father called in favors from police departments in two surrounding states i don't know uh in my research i couldn't find out which two states he called favors in but uh paula weldon's father was actually really really wealthy and really well known at the time and uh once people started finding out that paula weldon went missing uh her father started you know making all these calls and making all these favor or getting all these favors from these people uh and you know getting people to search around so paula's father actually has three state departments looking for uh paula well unfortunately uh even after 76 years later paula weldon was never found i i think it's crazy that even with people literally looking for her the night of her going missing and the whole school you know the day was called off the next day was called off all classes were canceled so all the staff and all the students went to go look for her on the long trail and it's it's cases like these where i'm like where could she have possibly gone like i know the uh the search was very disorganized at first so that probably left led to some time uh that could have been saved where she could have been saved where she could have been found but it's it's very weird to me that um she was immediately searched for as soon as she disappeared and could not be found even with the whole college and also three state police departments uh looking for her she couldn't be found um i don't know if they had used hounds for this i don't know if you know back in the day like 1946 they didn't have helicopters or anything so they all just kind of searched on foot so lack of modern technology and lack of modern search and rescue uh, practices also probably could have contributed to her not being found but she i mean to this day she still has never been found so and i don't know how big the long trail is it's in vermont so uh y'all do your own research on that and find out if the long trail is actually long so um i do think it's weird that paula left the apartment to go on the long trail with such casual clothing um especially with it gonna you know with it coming down to below freezing the same night so i don't know what to say about that either i do think it's weird um I, me personally, I would not go hiking in jeans and uh, uh, sneakers. I'd go hiking in like synthetic pants and my hiking boots, but I think it's weird. Um, family and friends all had their own theories about what happened to Paula that night. Could Paula have possibly run off with a boyfriend, starting a new life as a new couple? Um, Paula's parents were very strict and authoritarian. Uh, Paula may have met a boy that was not to her parents liking or she thought wouldn't have been to her parents liking so she may have ran off with him and eloped and started a new life we'll never know i mean she did leave the house in a suspicious way i mean like she she said she's going on a long walk with weird clothes on never returned so 
um, could Paula had been a dup? This is the one that I think was possibly the most uh, the most likely. Um, could Paula have been abducted on the trail, never to be seen again, except for her abductor? I unfortunately back in the day, that long ago, it was unfortunately way easier to get away with that stuff. Um, you could kidnap someone out there and never be found uh, and get away with it. Uh, Paula could have been kidnapped uh, with, you know, and that, that plays with her never being seen again, her remains never being found, even with such a large search team. Uh, so she could have been, and that that's kind of the leading play on many of these stories is that these people got abducted by people. But uh, we really don't know with Paula. Um did Paula commit suicide in the vast forest never to be discovered? I think if Paula committed suicide in the long trail, she would have she had to have put a lot of thinking and effort into it in order to never be found because uh if she had killed herself on the trail, then it would have she would have been found that night, you know. Uh but if she had walked so far into the forest to purposely kill herself, uh that could be possible, and if she died and decomposed, we we would never find her out that far. But uh, that's another possibility. Did Paula die of exposure that night due to inappropriate clothing choice? Um, I mean, she could have, but my thing is, is why would anyone do that? You know, I mean, I live in Texas, and I'm not, you know, I'm in New York right now, but I I really am I really don't know what cold weather is like to be honest i don't know how cold weather can be but vermont gets pretty cold so did she i mean if it was already cold that evening when she went to go hike i think it would have been common sense that she would have wrapped up a little more and wore better hiking clothes uh and i'm you know i'm assuming this but i mean she must have been on this trail a lot she must have she must have been a hiker. She must have known what she was doing. It's, I I don't know why she would have, I don't know why she would go out and close like that. So, um, a common mythical creature that supposedly lives in this area is called the Bennington monster. Could this monster have something to do with the disappearance? Um, you know, do what you will with that. She could have, if it exists, whatever. The Bennington monster uh it is in that area and she did go missing there and i don't i don't know anything about the bennington monster but if it's that well known then uh i don't know i mean it, it, she it could have played a part in this i don't know that could be another thing on it, another story on itself is the bennington monster um due to paula's disappearance and others in this area this triangulated location in Vermont has become known as the Burlington, uh, sorry, Bennington Triangle. Um, so she wasn't the only one who's gone missing in that location. She was actually the second person to go missing in that triangulated spot. I think it was between uh, the Long Trail and then Bennington and then some other place in Vermont that made this triangle uh, where people went missing. I don't know how many people today have gone missing total in the Bennington Triangle. I just know that Paula was the second one to go missing. So the, at the time she disappeared, it wasn't known as the Bennington Triangle at the time. But now it is. Now it's the Bennington Triangle. So 
Um, on the brighter side of this mystery, due to Paula's disappearance, Vermont did indeed found, uh, they formed the Vermont State Police. Uh, the force is actually dedicated to wilderness search and rescue missions around the state. Fortunately, the police, uh, the state police is much more professional and efficient in rescuing and finding missing persons. So, uh, I guess the state kind of learned their lesson on this, uh, missing persons case. And I'm assuming Paula's, uh, father also played a part in this, but, uh, they formed the Vermont state police and that, uh, Vermont is a very, uh, is a state very oriented on hiking trails and national park like nature i guess you could say and uh i would say it's a very necessary police force that needed to be founded because uh it's very easy to go missing in these places and it's very easy to get lost so they needed to find a more uh uh i guess professional uh rescue team to find these people on a on a pay stub so uh, I got my information from that story from HowStuffWorks.com. Um, the next story is Dennis Martin. Um, I hear this story every time I look at 411. Uh, I've been looking into 411 about five or six years now, and every time I stumble across it again, Dennis Martin's always the poster kid for this this uh, this topic. Uh, he's probably the most famous case, but. Um, Dennis Martin was a six-year-old that went on a camping trip with his family in the Smoky Mountain National Park in 1969. This trip was because of a Father's Day tradition in the family. All of the men in the Martin family would head to the National Park to camp and hike, so they do this every year. Dennis and his brothers had devised a prank to play on their father and uncle and the other adults that were there. I don't know how many people were there, but um, all the men in the family were there. Uh... Anyways, they were all going to hide in a bush and scare the adults by jumping out on different sides of the campsite. So, imagine this. So, imagine their campsite, right? That's uh, sitting there. From what I well, from what I read, this bush that they were going to hide in kind of wrapped around the entire campsite. So, what their plan was is that they were all going to get into the bush at different spots and then jump out at the same time and scare the adults. So they underwent this plan and after they had all jumped out after scaring the adults and getting the prank they all wanted all the laughter and surprise immediately stopped as soon as they had noticed that dennis was missing almost immediately the family had park rangers and other hikers amongst themselves to begin a thorough search but was nowhere to be found so uh the second Dennis went missing, immediately the family started searching for Dennis. Couldn't find him. So about maybe 20 minutes later, they got a hold of a park ranger and some visitors, and they started corralling all these people to come and help in the search, you know? So that's almost in terms of the outback wilderness. Not outback, but uh, uh, out in the wilderness. Uh, that's pretty fast for a search and rescue team. Usually it we call it the golden hour and that's uh usually the best case scenario for finding people and that that's in terms of like medical emergencies and like you know missing persons cases and stuff too so um but yeah they they actually had people starting to search for this kid in 20 minutes so um yeah he was nowhere to be found once they started doing that but the very same same evening a uh, heavy downfall of rain was casted on Smoky Mountain. 
and that had caused a huge problem in the search and it made it less and less possible to find an alive and well Dennis Martin and that's a constant problem with search and rescue even today um, when you're beginning to look for people in like heavy rain or heavy snow or thunderstorms or just natural you know inclement weather comes in it makes it so much harder to keep searching for them because uh, like I said earlier the the trails can change with rain and snow um, rain makes it harder to find people because your vision you know you're seeing the rain it's harder to see things uh, it becomes colder becomes kind of more on un- now with it becoming more unbearable that's not going to stop a search team but it becomes more unbearable anyway um, it can slow the search down it becomes more dangerous for the search team to go and look for these people so they they have their own lives at risk when this stuff happens too so when the, the rain started on smoky mountain it made it almost immediately harder for the search team to keep looking so they had already come across a, the first snag of the search on the first day when it started raining um but the search eventually grew to 1400 people making it the largest search for a missing person at the time and to this day still being the largest missing person search in smoky mountain national park that's a lot of people um i I, this is definitely 1400 people within the course of months but that's still a lot of people looking for this kid um i think they actually combed like 32 miles or something crazy like that uh on smoky mountain so not finding a kid within 32 miles is also strange but uh this made it like the biggest search at the time and still the biggest search at smoky mountain national park um with so many people searching for the body working together with inclement weather much evidence was possibly destroyed now that's not a fact that's just my own personal opinion um while it is good to have that many people searching for this boy um 1400 people stepping on things and not realizing it um they're possibly destroying evidence you know they're um possibly stepping on his clothes or maybe i don't know a berry that he was eating on or his shoes um pairing that with inclement weather you're essentially destroying all evidence that could be found um that's just a negative impact of so many people searching for him at the same time um eventually the search officially closed down on september 14th 1969 so that's that's three or four months i think when is father's day is that may anyway four months they had the search for four months 1400 people four months dennis's father had actually offered five thousand dollars which is $36,946 in 2021. That's that's a salary for some people. He was offering a whole salary as a reward for his information about his son. Almost 20 years later, a ginseng hunter claimed to have found skeletal remains of a child about 6 years old in Big Hollow Tremont. I don't know, unfortunately, how far Big Hollow is from the site he went missing, but... This ginseng hunter did indeed uh, claim to find uh, the remains of a child. Um, he had waited. The reason he'd waited 20 years to reveal this discovery was because ginseng hunting was illegal, and he was afraid of being prosecuted for the act. Um, I, 
I don't know if he'd be okay or not to report that when the time around the time because I I don't know if that counts under Good Samaritan laws or not, but um, I don't think the court would have even tried him for that. I mean, they couldn't they couldn't prove he was ginseng hunting. I don't think. Uh, I'd, I'd personally be more interested in hearing about the skeletal remains. That would have helped in the search a lot, and it's unfortunate that he waited 20 years uh, to come out with it. Um, but at least he did. At least he did. Um, nothing came out of that, though, because I don't think they could find where he like claimed to find this body. Uh, probably because he refused to show them because he didn't want to prove he was ginseng hunting. But there, it just never led anywhere. Um. One group of witnesses on the exact same day that Dennis had went missing had heard an enormous sickening scream, <clears throat> excuse me, and shortly afterwards noticed a hairy, dirty man carrying something relatively large. They also had noticed the man was running up to the hill to a white car, then just as fast as he had run up there had he sped off in the car. Um, I, I don't know what to say about that, uh, that witness um because it was a whole family who had uh attested this in court but um they had said essentially i'm going to re reiterate what they said but uh they had said that the same day i don't know how far away this was from dennis martin's campsite but they had said they had found or they had seen this uh big hairy man who was very dirty gross hairy uh carry off something large I don't think they had time to see what it was. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But uh, after hearing a large blood-curling scream, uh, they see the guy getting into a car with the the object and then driving off super-duper fast. So take that what you will. With so many people searching for him, or sorry, what had happened to Dennis Martin on that fateful day in the Smoky Mountains in 1969? And these are some things to think about for this story. With so many people searching for him in such a fast time, why was he never found? Was he abducted by the hairy, dirty man? I don't know. Um, if that story was true, it probably was an abductor. Um, that could explain how the kid went missing from such a short distance from the campsite. Because the bushes were literally, like, probably right behind the campsite. Um... Was he attacked and eaten by a bobcat or a boar? Um, see, my problem with that is, is that I would think that if a bobcat or a boar would, would attack this kid, you'd think you'd hear something. You'd think the family would hear something like, I don't know, scratching, a fight, you know, some foul play, um, screaming possibly. Um, had he somehow got lost in that moment and traveled so far that he died of exposure where he couldn't be found? I don't know. Like I said, the bush was literally right behind the campsite. Like, like to put it in perspective, if they had jumped out of the... When they had jumped out of the bushes, they were essentially kind of in front of the campfire type thing, you know? Like, it, it was that close. Um, but yeah, what happened to him uh, to this day... No one knows or can explain what happened to Dennis, Dennis Martin. And I got my information from that story from HowStuffWorks.com as well, but also Wikipedia and the New York Post. Um, 
the next one I decided to add because it kind of hits me in a personal place because I know exactly where this place is. I can actually drive there right now. Um, Douglas Leg. Eight-year-old Douglas Leg and his family were hiking on the Santanoni Preserve in the Adirondack Park. Um, I, I'm housed in the Adirondack Park, by the way. I'm doing trail work here. So uh, about 15 minutes from my base camp, uh, Santanoni Preserve uh, is right there. It's in the same town. It's crazy. Um, but Douglas Leg and his family were hiking on the Santanoni Preserve in the Adirondack Park when his uncle noticed poison ivy on the trail and told Douglas to walk a very short distance back home to put on some pants. The house was a short, straight shot distance from their location at the time. Sorry, there was a car that drove by. I'm out in the wilderness right now. Um, the house was a short, straight shot distance from their location. And Douglas was a very experienced in knowledge of, or had very much experience and knowledge of this trail. So to put it into perspective again, um, the Santanoni Preserve uh, is an area. It's not a trail per se, but the preserve is an area. And their house is actually on the preserve. So they had gotten on the road to walk on the trail. Uh, and their house was right behind it, a good short distance, maybe like 100 meters or so. Very short. Um, but yeah, it was, a very, it was a very short straight shot distance from their location. Um, but... This would be the last time Douglas Leg would ever be seen again. Leg's disappearance actually sparked one of the Adirondack's largest search and rescue missions, with more than 600 people participating in the search. But, unlike in Martin's search, rescuers used bloodhounds in their search. Oddly enough, though, some accounts describe the dogs catching Leg's scent as far as 30 miles away through difficult terrain. So, that's outside of the trail that's like in the wilderness so they found the kids sent 30 miles away in the in the Santanoni preserve 30 miles you know deep in the wilderness um what had happened to leg black bear tracks were found in the area but it's extremely unusual that a bear would bring its prey 30 miles away um black bears are also very timid i don't they <laughs> If they were hungry, they definitely would attack a, a small child. They are timid creatures, though. I also don't see black bears carrying a child 30 miles. Um, that's a really long distance. Was he abducted? Probably. Did he simply get lost? I don't think so. He was experienced, and he knew exactly where the house was. But we'll never know. Yeah, that one, that one kind of hits me close to home just because I... Uh, I, I know where that is, you know. It's it's so, it's so creepy. I could I could go there tomorrow if I wanted to, um, and just I, I could go there tomorrow and just know that someone like a kid went missing and was never found there. So that's that's really scary to me. It's creepy. Um, the next story is Stephen Kubaki, and in my honest opinion, this is probably like the strangest story. Out of all of the rest of them, um, to me personally, to me especially, um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, in February of 1977, a 24-year-old man from Michigan named Stephen Kubacki was cross-country skiing through the snow in Lake Michigan. Once he reached the lake, 
he took off his skis to relax to sit and relax by a tree. After relaxing, Stephen had noticed that his tracks were gone. Becoming exhausted, Stephen remembered walking through the snow feeling numb. Stephen eventually blacked out. The next thing he realized, it was spring. He was lying in a grassy field in the middle of the forest, wearing clothes that weren't his. He also had a backpack next to him, full of things that weren't his either. He had hiked to the nearest town and asked a local where he was. The resident told him that he was in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, over 700 miles away from where he last saw himself. He went to his aunt's house in Pittsfield and received an overwhelming shock of happiness and confusion. Stephen had found out from his family that he had been missing for 14 months. When Stephen had first went missing, authorities had found his poles and skis at the lake. The authorities had also noticed a set of footprints leaning over the water, but none going back in the opposite direction. Authorities assumed that Stephen died of either drowning or hypothermia, given the conditions and time. The official cause and explanation has been given to acute amnesia. But, so, to, to rewind a little bit, Stephen had made it to Lake Michigan on a skiing trip, and once he had stopped at the lake, he looked back and noticed that his tracks were gone. So, he essentially got lost, and he uh, started walking around, and had, you know, essentially become exhausted and cold. And it had gotten to the point where he had gotten so exhausted and cold, he apparently blacked out. And next thing he knows, he's in a different city in a different state, over 700 miles away, um, with stuff that wasn't his. And surprisingly, you know, very unorthodox, like very surprisingly, he had been missing for about 14 months. And the authorities had found everything at the original site that was his, except for him. Here's my thing. If he were so, how do I put this? If he were, if he was in such a dire situation, how did he get out? How did he escape? How did he become so exhausted and tired that he blacked out, but somehow made it out? How did he lose his memory for 14 months and then regain it 14 months what did caused him to lose both his memory and then regain it what uh what had he done in those 14 months how did he not get found um how did he survive um to this day the public and even Steven cannot figure out what had happened in between those days. Uh, and I didn't write this down in my notes, but in my research, I found out that Steven became so obsessed with his own story. He actually got a PhD in psychology just to f- figure out what had happened to himself. And he still can't figure it out. But um, I had gotten, I'd gotten this story from top10s.net. Um, that is, that is the weirdest story. Uh, out of the five I think it is definitely the strangest definitely the most unexplainable um it's fantastic that he survived and was found again by his family uh with the reunite uh them being reunited but 
it it's such such a weird circumstance and i know it's different than the other stories because he actually had been found but i don't know it's weird um my last story however is about jared atadero in 1999 three-year-old jared atadero was living with his family at the comanche wilderness resort in colorado when a Christian group offered to take Jared and his sister on a hike with them. Agreeing, the group set out for the hike. On the hike, the group had become so focused on their hike that they hadn't noticed that Jared had gone missing from the group. Now, I guess it's because since they didn't know this kid at all, pretty much, uh, they probably didn't remember that he was there. I don't know, I can't say, but they had essentially lost the kid uh, in this hike. Two hikers in a different group, so not in the Christian group, there, it's, what I meant by this was that it was two hikers, uh, at a different spot on the trail, uh, had noticed Jared walking alone and a distance away, but shrugged it off to thinking that his parents were nearby. Jared was never seen alive again. In 2003, two hikers climbed up a very steep 500 foot rock near the trail. So this is four years later. When they had reached the top, they had noticed a child's tooth, a piece of a skull cap, and Jared's clothes, oddly turned inside out, perfectly intact. His shoe was also present, looking brand new. All of the clothes were perfectly preserved and intact, even after being out in exposure for four years. So to give you some time to process that. Uh, so Jared Atadero was living with his family because his father uh, worked at the Comanche Wilderness Resort. And this Christian group, this resort uh, was available to rent for groups. You know, they could come and stay there for a couple of days and do the activities there. But on that particular day, uh, a Christian group was staying there and it offered to take Jared and his sister out on the hike that they were going to go do and uh i I can't remember specifically but i think it was reluctantly the dad agreed but uh the christian group took jared and her sister and his sister out on the hike and had lost him i don't know how how a whole group could have lost a kid but they had lost jared he was never seen again for four years until that day in 2003 when two hikers hiked up a very very steep 550 foot rock on the trail so just imagine uh you're walking on the trail right and there's a there's a rock that's 550 foot steep uh that's pretty high that's like extremely high and they had found his tooth his skull cap and his clothes but his clothes were inside out and preserved like very much preserved after four years um Nothing more came out of that. Uh, that's all they found. But why were his clothes turned inside out and perfectly intact? Where did Jared go all that time? Why was his possessions on top of a rock that was 550 feet up high in the air and steep? Like, it, it's impossible for a child to get up there. Um, it, it was, you know, it was too steep for a three-year-old, but... What if a kidnapper had actually kidnapped him? Well, still, 
it's impossible, not impossible, but it's very, very unlikely that a kidnapper was able to also not only bring himself up to the rock, but bring Jared up with him. Uh, very, very unlikely. That is almost impossible. Um, it would awful. It would have been impossible for if, let's say, Jared was actually attacked by a predator animal and killed and eaten. Um, it would have been impossible for an animal to be able to take the body up on top of the rock too. So let's say it was a boar or a mountain lion. Uh, impossible. Very much impossible. Um, <clears throat> also, his clothes were in inside out and intact perfectly preserved if an animal were to you know kill and eat the the child the clothes would have been very tattered very bloody very scratched you know destroyed almost so the i I think the predator could be ruled out um but i just me personally like why were his clothes perfectly inside out you know why why were they so preserved why how did his remains end up on a on a rock maybe not just his remains how did his body get up there um to this day we still don't know what happened to jared so these stories are just five of the 1600 missing persons cases around the country in national parks granted they are some of the most mysterious and interesting cases known to us But it is frightening and morbid that so many people have disappeared without a trace. Why are national parks such a center for disappearances? Do factors such as the wilderness, lack of communication, lack of resources, and lack of control of the situation make it much easier for people to find themselves missing? For people to make others go missing, possibly? Until more research and development into these cases and phenomena are better understood, the missing 411 topic will continue to be a very plaguing mystery to our beautiful national parks. Thank y'all for listening to History of Our Mysteries, Episode 6. Episode 7 is scheduled to be released Sunday of this week, Um, and hopefully I'll make that deadline, but if I don't, expect it in between that in the next episode. this episode was really fun to do. Um, it was also fun, really fun to record. Uh, I'm sitting out, like I said, in the wilderness, recording this uh, out on a trail, um, and I'm enjoying myself. I'm spooking myself out, saying, you know, uh, telling y'all these stories and explaining 411 to y'all while I'm out in the wilderness. It's <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of poetic. It's weird, but um, like I said, the next episode will be out next week. I hope y'all enjoyed this one. I put a lot of effort and time into this one. And thank y'all for watching and listening. See you next week on History of Our Mysteries.